Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matter to you. My name is Sibylla Steiner and this week I'm delighted to be joined by panelist Sibylla Raphael, the legal director at Protect. Protect is the UK's whistleblowing charity and is a leading authority on whistleblowing in the UK. Sibylla is a leading specialist whistleblowing lawyer working alongside employers, regulators and whistleblowers. In 2019, the EU Parliament passed a new EU directive on whistleblowing, which set the minimum standards of protection that countries in the EU must provide legally for whistleblowers. Having left the EU, the UK is under no legal obligation to transpose this EU directive into UK law. However, the directive remains relevant for UK organisations with wider EU operations and will also have to be taken into account by companies that have a global whistleblowing framework. During this podcast and with the benefit of Sibylla's insight, we're going to focus on the current protection the UK whistleblowing laws provide, how that protection compares to the EU directive and why businesses should take whistleblowing seriously. There will also be some practical top tips for having effective whistleblowing systems in place. So welcome to this podcast, Sibylla. Um, We are delighted to have you with us um, today. So let's start, I would suggest, with a, a basic question. What do we mean by whistleblowing and has this changed? in the last five years. Thank you, Sibylle. Um, The Public Interest Disclosure Act that uh, gives protection to whistleblowers in the UK was passed in 1998, five years after PROTECT, the UK whistleblowing charity of which I am a legal director, was established to, and I quote, promote ethical standards of conduct and compliance with the law. Obviously, ethical standards of conduct evolve with time and therefore um, also evolve what we mean by whistleblowing. We at Protect have individually advised more than 45,000 whistleblowers to date, and it used to be all about financial misconduct or patient safety. But now on our advice line, we hear about greenwashing and anti-trans discrimination. And since 2017, we've had a 100% increase in the proportion of harassment cases. More and more workers are wanting to raise concerns about toxic workplace cultures, whether bullying or discrimination, and they want to raise it via whistleblowing channels. So we've come a long way from the time when disclosures were less likely to be protected if the whistleblower had a private interest in raising them. Thank you very much, Sibylla, for for that very helpful um, introduction. Are there any expectations in the UK to have a proactive approach to whistleblowing? Or is it, are there no expectations and and companies just need to act or react um, where one of their employees blows the whistle? Well, the the law um, is only concerned about after the event 
retaliation. The law gives you a remedy if you've suffered a detriment, if you've been punished because you uh, blew the whistle. There is no requirement in, um, in the general UK law for organisations in the UK to have anything around whistleblowing processes. But we've seen um, that uh, some regulators actually have embraced whistleblowing and consider that whistleblowing is, is a really um, uh, effective tool uh, to ensure that the companies they uh, regulate um, uh, follow the law and to ensure a level playing field. So, for instance, the FCA in the financial sector has set out pretty detailed uh, rules, uh, including having a whistleblowing champion at board level, including, uh, for instance, training uh, obligations. And for the last 30 years at Protect, we've been developing and refining with the most innovative uh, organisations what work best. So um, do get in touch if you need whistleblowing training for your staff or, or consultancy on, on which systems to set up and how to monitor them. So there are some regulators um, that uh, uh, have very clear expectations on, on whistleblowing. Um, the SRA uh, is, is another one. It now, um, so the SRA, which regulates law firms and, and lawyers, now acknowledges that uh, reporting in the public interest needs to be protected. And, and indeed, they've taken a stance on um, what we call SLAPs, the strategic uh, litigation against public participation, and they've also recently committed to become a prescribed person, the status that makes it easier for whistleblowers to gain protection when they blow the whistle to um, their regulators. Um, also, more generally, regulators now uh, tend to consider that culture is part of their remit, including speak up, listen up culture, as uh, the FCA puts it. And, and that means being proactive, um, and especially in relation to uh, whistleblowing, uh, because victimization of the whistleblower is a very, um, very frequent occurrence because it's a very natural default mode. No one likes it when someone uh, brings a problem. It's really hard to be a good receiver of bad news. And shooting the messenger is the easy default option. So um, victimization is very likely to happen if you, as an organization, does, do not proactively prevent it. It's not enough for a company to say, uh, we got rid of the bad apple, we disciplined the manager, we disciplined um, the uh, person who tried to cover up uh, the wrongdoing or the person who uh, tried to silence the whistleblower. More and more now, organizations have to demonstrate what they're doing for preventing the apple, uh, uh, allowing itself to be bad. So companies need to make it clear that victimization will not be tolerated and they need to have systems in place to assess the risk early and to provide tools um, to, to ensure it, uh, it, it does not happen. How is the UK framework working? Do people do people know about it? Do people know about the protection? Do, do they know how to raise concerns? And who is actually who is protected? So we think the uh, UK system um, does not work uh, well enough. Not that many people actually know how to um, raise a concern. 
And even if they do know, um, very often they will suffer uh, victimization and they will find it very hard to um, assert their rights. Um, if they do end up in an employment tribunal, uh, if they do bring a claim against their employer, it's um, actually a complex piece of law. So statistically, they're likely to lose. So no, we don't think that the system works very well. We think it could be improved. We think it should be improved. And um, at Protect, um, we have a legal reform campaign with three main uh, suggestions. One is about um, the scope of the protection. The law hasn't kept up with the times, really, and uh, uh, the law only protects um, workers, which is defined quite narrowly, and, and, and for instance, doesn't, work out, doesn't protect trustees or volunteers. We think that everyone in a working relationship should uh, uh, should should um, have a duty to uh, report wrongdoing when they see it, um, but that's another uh, another issue. But at the very least, should be protected when they decide to report uh, a, a wrongdoing if they're in a in a work context. Um, we also think that uh, uh, the, the the standards um, forcing companies to put in place uh, systems is um, um, a very important way to uh, ensure that companies will take whistleblowing seriously and will try to, to protect um, their workers. So we also push for um, the law to impose standards on, on employers. Um, and, and, and we also think that the law should be simplified and, and harmonized. Um, at, Every claim that is uh, brought to tribunal is sadly an example that whistleblowing has failed. The employer hasn't listened or uh, the whistleblower has been punished for it. So we think it should be easier to access the tribunal. We think the whistleblowing regime should, for instance, be harmonized with the discrimination regime, which is um, much better understood by employers and indeed um, workers, and um, we, sh we think whistleblowers should have a better access to uh, justice. We've commissioned a YouGov research last spring, and it showed that only 31% of workers knew how to raise a concern at work. And 65% of the whistleblowers who've contacted us for advice in the last five years uh, said that they had received negative treatment for raising their concerns. Just like Linda, a head nurse, who pointed out to her management that her team was overworked and that the new patient protocol they had now to follow was making it worse. She was told it was her who was the problem. She was humiliated in meetings. She was isolated and she ended up having to resign. Telling her she had the right under the law to raise problems and not to be victimized for it did not prevent any of it from happening. And in the end, she did want her claim. She did get a £465,000 compensation from the employment tribunal, but obviously her career is at an end. And for the last six years, she's been unable to work and she's very unlikely to go back to work, at least as yeah. a nurse. Yeah, that's a very important case, I think, and very important comments with regards to that. I think there are the 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 case that that you've just mentioned was obviously a very important and where the the wrongdoing 
clearly had to be had to be disclosed. There are, I think, other cases or other situations where it is possible that that workers use the whistleblowing laws to position themselves in relation when it comes to an employment claim, for example. So how easy or difficult do you think it is for an employer to to make sure that they comply with all their obligations and further a culture of people pointing out wrongdoing, but don't find themselves with too many complaints which might not fall into the actual category of wrongdoing? It's, it's a very good question. And it's why triaging um, the concerns that are raised by workers is, is really important. And um, it may well be that what the worker is concerned about only concerns that particular worker, only concerns their relationship with their line manager, um, and therefore will be better treated as a grievance. And um, indeed, most um, organisations will have uh, mature whistleblowing systems in, in place, um, have uh, worked a lot on triaging um, and identifying what needs to be investigated as a whistleblowing concern and what's better um, investigated as a, as a grievance. It's a, it's a really important point. But remember that as an organisation, you want to hear, um, you know, you'd rather, you should rather hear more than hear less, basically. Uh, whistleblowing and, and the ability for your workers to raise concern is an absolutely vital tool for you to be able to detect risk early. It's also a vital tool to ensure accountability and to ensure that no single individual um, uh, has too much power in a way. So it, it's really key to not just to your risk management, but also to your governance um, and to ensure that you know you 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 you're not going in a pickle because you follow your regulation obligations. Um, and it's also obviously key to ensure that your workforce feels psychologically safe. Um, it's an absolutely vital tool to ensure that your workforce um, feels happy at work, uh, feels loyal, and it's going to help your retention rate. If your worker feels that they can speak out um, if they uh, see um, wrongdoing, it's going to make your teams more effective. And, and it's also going to allow you to progress. Um, you know, if no one is allowed to say, hey, the static quo could be improved, we could do this in a slightly different way, maybe in a slightly better way, because um, I, think we, I think this is wrong. Well, um, you're never going to improve if no one has a right to point that out. So um, I think it's really important organisations embrace um, whistleblowing. Um, that doesn't mean that whistleblowing should be a trump card for workers to avoid being put on the um, performance review or to avoid being disciplined for particular misconduct. Whistleblowing is certainly not that. Um, and how do you, um, you know how do you ensure that you can still discipline your whistleblower? I think you need to be very clear about causation. Uh, what is it? What is exactly the misconduct um, that uh, you're addressing? Um, and if the disciplinary sanction 
is clearly linked to the misconduct and is not linked to the whistleblowing, then you know you should have absolutely no problem to explain that to the judge. Indeed, in relation to uh, causation, it's usually much easier to be in the employer's seat rather than in in the whistleblower's seat. Uh, it's easier for the uh, company to 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 show causation. So we say, you know, show your workings, justify your decision. Of course, if um, you know the day after. Uh, someone raised a concern, your star employee who's always had brilliant performance ratings, if the day after this particular employee uh, is put on a performance review and there's no sort of, you know, other reason than the protected disclosure uh, for that, well, the judge may take a rather dim view <laughs> of the organisation. But if actually um, you have documented um, issues um, in the past, um, and, and therefore, there is a logic to the performance review, or there is, you know, a clear reason for the disciplinary warning. Then the judge won't be fooled, um, and and the fact that the, the worker has made a protected disclosure is neither here nor there. The reason for the misconduct or the reason for the performance review is clearly identified. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I think there there are sort of three very important points in in what you've you've just said. I think the first point is the triage you you mentioned, so that that organisations employees are actually trained sufficiently to be able to identify um, what 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 is a grievance, what is whistleblowing, and also to realise and recognise um, when there are issues and concerns. Um, and I think the second point is that it is actually it is to the benefit of the organization as well to to follow any any concerns that employees raise. Um, it's not just to be regarded as as a burden um, to follow whistleblowing laws or maybe even go beyond um, what what the law requires um, and also to be able to demonstrate should one end up um, in tribunal proceedings, what, what has been done to follow the procedures and everything in a proper way. Now, shall we shall we have a look now as as what do other European countries, what do our European partners do and what does the EU directive framework offer? And in particular, in what way is it different to the UK laws? We, we talked about um, about the scope of the application um, of the of UK law, or it is restricted. Um, and my understanding is there that the scope of the directive is is much wider, and that it does apply beyond workers. Is is that is that right? Yeah. Yes. Very much so. So. In the UK, the law only protects workers, that means self-employed people, non-executive directors, charity trustees or volunteers. They have no rights to be treated uh, well, or they have, if they have the courage to speak up about wrongdoing, they have no rights in the, if indeed they're treated appallingly because uh, they spoke up a wrongdoing, none at all. The, the EU whistleblowing directive uh, protects all those who are in um, in a work-related context. It speaks of work-related activities, and it expressly includes self-employed, 
shareholders, non-executive directors, trustees, volunteers and trainees. Um, unlike um, the UK law, only in the NHS in the UK are job applicants protected when they speak up. Uh, employers can, and you know, some of them do, look at employment tribunal decisions and decide that they don't want to employ troublemakers. This sort of discrimination can cause lifelong career damage uh, to those speaking up, which is why we at Protect think that uh, the UK law uh, needs to keep up with the times and uh, follow uh, the same way as the EU directive in embracing workers as, as a much uh, wider uh, category. But maybe even more importantly, the EU directive imposes standards on employers, on every employer with 50 or more workers. They now have to establish internal arrangements with strict deadlines to acknowledge and feedback on the concerns raised by whistleblowers. There are impartiality, uh, confidentiality requirements. There's also a requirement for employers to give clear details on how to report a concern externally to a relevant uh, regulator. All that is expressly set out in uh, the EU directive. And if I may add, Sibyl, it's not just in the EU. There are similar provisions in Australia, in some US states, in Hong Kong, and um, soon in Japan. So that's that's very much the direction that internationally the, the law is taking. And that's also very much the direction that we at Protect, we believe um, the UK law should follow. And what about burden of proof under the directive? Yes, that's another uh, difference from uh, the, the UK law. Um, the UK law makes it rather hard for the whistleblower to prove that the detriment, the bad treatment, or, or indeed the dismissal, was caused by uh, the whistleblowing. And in the EU directive, the system is that the burden of proof is, is reversed. So if the worker can show that they've made a protected disclosure, and if the employer can't um, show a valid reason for the treatments that, you know, being complained about for the dismissal or, or, or the detriment, um, then the judge has to um, rule that the treatment was caused by the whistleblowing. So, um, and, and, and that's particularly significant when you're talking about um, uh, omission, like, you know, you failed to promote me because I blew the whistle. Well, if there are no good reason why, um, you know, the worker shouldn't have been uh, promoted, then the judge will rule that the uh, absence of promotion was caused by the whistleblowing, which goes back to my point that it's really important for employers to sort of show their workings, just like a primary school teacher would tell um, uh, their pupils um, to, to justify the decision or sometimes even their absence of decision. Uh, to make it clear that it's not caused by the whistleblowing, but it's caused by something else. Thank you. And also, I think in, in the directive, there is a, a stricter timeline or there is a timeline within which an organisation has to deal with any whistleblowing concerns that are being raised. And, and that timeline does not exist under the UK law as it stands 
at the moment? Absolutely. There's two different kinds of, of timeline, actually. You have a very strict um, seven days to acknowledge that you've received uh, the concern. And, um, and then you have to give feedback, some sort of feedback to the whistleblower within three months of uh, the concern uh, being raised. That's actually a, a very good thing in our view. Um, the main reason why people don't blow the whistle is one, because they fear they're going to be punished uh, for it, but two, because they feel it's not going to do anything. They feel ignored. They feel that you know the employer won't care, won't address it, won't, won't even investigate it. And most of the time, actually, that's wrong. Most of the time, employers do investigate um, the concern. It's, but, but very often, they won't relay that back to the whistleblower, partly because it takes time, partly because it's complicated, partly because there are confidentiality issues at stake. Um, but feedback is really important. Feedback to the whistleblower is really important. And, and we at Protect really believe that the, the, um, the language around whistleblowing needs to change and it, it needs to be far more a good news stories, you know, uh, because whistleblowing is good. Whistleblowing is good for business. Uh, and so you need to share the good news. You need to say, hey, thanks to a whistleblower, we realized that this was not doing as well as it could and we fixed it and now it's better. And, and that's something that sadly uh, is, um, is not often um, you know, publicized. And, and of course, in the newspapers, you hear about the awful stories, you hear about the scandal, you hear about you know, um, Greenfell, the fact that there were whistleblowers who knew that the cladding wasn't safe, but of course no one listened to them and it ended up in these appalling uh, catastrophes. Or, or you hear about the um, huge sums of money that the tribunal um, has awarded to a whistleblower who's been um, you know, um, ostracized, uh, harassed for several years and had to um, you know, give up their career and so on and so forth. So you hear when things go wrong, it's much harder to to um, to speak about uh, when things go right and, and you actually don't hear about it, but you should. So this feedback piece we think is 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 really important and is a very good uh, idea that we'd like the UK law to follow too. You mentioned the 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 issue of confidentiality and. I think from from sort of our practice here, that is always a big a big one, a big point. And that's not just confidentiality for the person who blows the whistle, but also in relation to I think other people who can provide witness evidence as to what has happened or, or what what didn't happen. And we often see that there is a request of anonymity because of probably fear of repercussions. And I mean, as, as you say, if if the whole concept of whistleblowing has a more positive feel to it then then a negative feel that 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 concern about confidentiality will well it probably won't fall away its entire in its entirety but it will become less relevant but we are where we are right now so how how do you think this this concern about 
confidentiality, particularly sort of for witnesses in the context of an overall investigation? How, if people just say we do want to remain anonymous, we don't want to give our names, how best can a business and organization deal with that? And is there any under UK law and is there anything in the directive that goes a different way or, or is it dealt with the same? Cyril, I'm often asked by uh, businesses or organization, uh, hey, what's the right number of concern, whistleblowing concern raised per year for an, an organization our size and in our sector? And there is no magic number. Uh, zero whistleblowing concern can be a very good thing. It can mean that actually people raise their concern with their line manager and it's all dealt informally and it's not even called whistleblowing because, you know, because it's all been solved. Or it can be extremely sinister. It can mean that your workforce is so scared of, of, of um, detrimental treatment, of repercussion, that they don't dare using the whistleblowing channel. But there is one figure that I think is really worth uh, looking at, and it's the proportion of concern raised anonymously versus the proportion of concerns raised confidentially. And if your workers um, feel that the only way they can raise concern is anonymously, I think that says something quite sinister about your workplace culture. Um, and I think you really need to address it. Um, and confidentiality is key, uh, obviously, um, especially for the whistleblower. The best way to prevent victimization from happening is to ensure that actually um, the, the fact that the whistleblower has blown the whistle uh, about a particular team, about a particular manager, about a particular uh, concern is really kept um, confidential and is only shared on a need-to-know basis um, uh, in the whistleblowing team by by the uh, people who are going to investigate the concern. It, it, it's really the best way uh, to prevent victimization from happening. Uh, once, you know, once the identity of the whistleblower is revealed, as I've said, victimization is going to be the natural default mode. Um, so um, it, it's really important that you, you try to keep it confidential. But confidential does not necessarily mean anonymous. And of course, your organization uh, we'll need to get as much good information as you can for the whistleblower. So it's obviously in your interest that your uh, your whistleblower feels um, confident enough to share that you know a minimum of detail with you. At the very least, share um, some kind of email address, even if it's uh, uh, you know an invented Gmail address just for that purpose, just so that you can extract uh, as much. Uh, information as, as you need to start the investigation. And of course, it's going to make your investigation much easier if you, um, if you, the more information you get. So really important to take it very seriously, really important to have watertight processes, especially in a, in a big organization um, to ensure that, um, uh, you know, indeed it's taking place. Sometimes it's very difficult to be because of course, uh, sometimes the very fact that you're starting an investigation on a particular team will send a signal to the wrongdoer that someone must have blown the whistle. And very often the wrongdoer will have a pretty clear idea as to you know, who has blown the whistle, either because this person has already raised um, a similar concern in the past or because it's a person that's been the most outspoken or whatever. So, um, 
you know, you really need to take it seriously, which is also why um, we've set up with um, uh, innovative thought leader and, and organizations who have um, really um, worked on the question and set up a, a whole uh, victimization guide. Well, uh, more accurately, how do you prevent uh, victimization from happening uh, guide with things like uh, a risk assessment template, um, you know, a list of questions that your investigators should should go through really um, uh, at the beginning of the process just to um, get a sense as to you know, what are the red flags here, uh, where could it go wrong, what do we need to be careful about. You know, sometimes you may think, do we need to actually um, transfer the whistleblower to another team because, um, you know, the circumstances are such that um, otherwise the, the wrongdoer is bound to um, try to influence the whistleblower or try to damage evidence or whatever. So, yeah, it, confidentiality is, is really key and it's, it's really key in relation to, to victimization. It's also really key in relation to other witnesses who may be too scared to uh, give you the information you need uh, if you don't protect their confidentiality. Thank you. And I, I do, am I right in thinking that the position in the UK is similar to what the directive proposes, although it's been developed via case law rather than anything specifically set out in UK legislation? So, again, the UK law doesn't say your employer has to investigate a concern. Uh, whether it's uh, it's been raised anonymously or or uh, you know with a named uh, whistleblower, but the UK law says um, if um, the whistleblower can prove that they've suffered a detriment, they've suffered a wrong because they blew the whistle, the fact that they blew the whistle anonymously um, is irrelevant in a way. You know, if they can show the causal link and uh, between the the, the treatment and the protected disclosure, um, yeah. which you know will probably mean that their identity will obviously mean that their identity as whistleblowers has been uh, found out at some point. Um, then the fact that originally they, they they raised a concern anonymously is irrelevant. Thank you. So, looking at businesses now, uh, to talk about organisations who operate not just in the UK but also in the EU and and globally, you mentioned earlier um, whistleblowing laws in Australia and Japan and so on. So, as a UK business and organisation, it it isn't possible to just ignore what um, whistleblowing laws exist in other countries. So, whistleblowing laws that will be brought in in other countries by the EU directive and and that are being brought in outside the EU globally as well. So as if a business does operate in these other countries, you will need to acquaint yourself with the with the rules there and you will need to comply with those rules. And I suppose you also need to take them into account if you have a sort of global whistleblowing guidance, whistleblowing policy. We we do see that quite regularly in um, the questions that are being put to us, where an organisation says, well, we do want to have something that does apply globally. Um, 
but as we discussed the the rules are not the same in every in every country so what would you say would be the best approach for the employer in that case and i suppose there are different approaches i mean you can have sort of sub policies in your global ones that apply to the individual countries where it is different or i suppose you can go and say well we will take the standard the the gold plated standard so we will go with what's the best protection um potentially go even beyond what a country with the sort of most protection the, a country's law with the most protection provides for um or you just say well it's too complicated and we won't have a global one <laughs> what what in your experience which, which sort of route do organizations follow um and what do you think would be the best route to follow if you want your workers to speak up and everyone should want their workers to speak up um you know one one stat that i i didn't use but i'm going to you know tell you now is um that 42% of food is uncovered via tips and over half of those are from employees compared with 60% of food uncovered by internal audit. Whistleblowers are much better at helping you uncover food. They really are the first line of defense against wrongdoing and, and are much better um, than internal audits or, or any other mechanism at identifying uh, risks of, of, of food and corruption. So if you are serious about uh, wanting to have a, a speak-up culture, if you believe that cover-up benefits no one and, and should not have any place in, in your organization, consistency and clarity of message is, is key. And, and um, I know you wanted to ask me about, you know, top tips. Um, clearly turn from the top and having a consistent, clear and constant message about, um, about why whistleblowing is important, why actually speaking up is what we expect from you and why uh, victimization of, of whistleblowers will not be tolerated. That, that's really important. And that means that even if you are a global organization, I think it's very important you have a very clear message um, for everyone within your organization. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that whistleblowing in practice uh, will, you know, will mean the same thing in the UK or in India or in Japan. Uh, culturally, these are very, very different countries with culturally um, um, huge differences in, in how they see whistleblowing um, and certainly how they deal with whistleblowing. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to adapt your process and your policy to the very different culture um, in which they're going uh, to take place. But I think it's really important that that sits within a global framework that's very clear about the message that you want to send to, to your workforce. Um, and that's also important because it's not just um, it's not just a regulator who's going to be interested in your culture, in your speak up, listen up culture. Uh, it's not just your staff, obviously, for, 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 for who it's going to be really important. It's also about your shareholders and, and, and your clients and your reputations. Uh, you know, increasingly now um, people expect 
organizations to be transparent on um, on, on societal issues um, and um, and it's you know more and more important now to sort of uh, walk the talk and, and and to and to show that the culture within within an organization um, is uh, is not a toxic culture is a good culture and and that also will impact uh, your your bottom line uh, because it will impact your your customers it will it will be of interest to your investors um, more and more yes thank thank you that, that that i think that sounds like really really good advice so if i understood correctly what you were saying was that it is important to have an overall global whistleblowing culture um and have and sort of have that in a policy but there's nothing wrong and probably can be even preferable and more helpful if then the individual rules of the individual countries are being followed because if you are saying there are cultural differences in different countries um, which also are important to be complied with and so that there is nothing wrong with having this overall policy but then individual policies for the individual countries um, yes indeed if yeah, that yeah yeah at the end yeah. of the day, okay. you want the system to work, uh, and, and and so you want to make sure that it, it will work in the very very different circumstances that it will be applied to. So I think it's it's obviously a good thing to be flexible and to think, okay, well that doesn't work here. So how how do we you know how do we change it slightly so that it works better? So we've talked about the importance of having a, a whistleblowing policy, but really what's far more important is to monitor whether it's working. To, to check whether actually in practice your workers feel safe um, speaking up and, and your workers will not suffer any uh, detrimental treatment, any repercussion when when you speak up. And to be able to do that, you're, you're not just going to to look at your policy. Um, at Protect, you know, we have 30 years experience and, and we've developed a whole whistleblowing benchmark. And we look at governance, we look at operation, and we look at communication, we look at, at your engagements. Whistleblowing, you really need to take it holistically. Um, and, and, and I also say whistleblowing should be part of your induction process. When your staff joins, you need to let them know they can speak up, they should speak up, and, and you need to explain how they can speak up um, in, in a safe way. And I think that that sort of brings us to the end of our podcast. Sibylla, thank you very much. That has been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, and thank you very much for, for joining us. And that's it for today. Um, thank you very much for listening to the Urban Mitchell podcast. And if you found it interesting, then please join us for our next episode.